We're in verse 30. thought I would address it now because many people keep asking me why I'm not wearing a 49ers jersey. And my answer to that is I'm very aware of this crowd, so I don't want to put barriers to the gospel or anything. So, um, but I may or may not have an undershirt that is an undershirt. I will not, I will not acknowledge it or not. But nonetheless, um, guys, this morning uh, we are in First John chapter 5, and we come to the final words of this beautiful letter of First John. It's been very life-giving, I know, to me. I hope it has been to you as well. And... Um, I'm going to read this here for us, beginning in verse 13, all the way to the end. This is what it says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we do pray again this morning that you would speak to us very clearly during this time. God, that you'd bring about conviction in our hearts where conviction needs to be brought. Lord, I pray you'd bring about encouragement where we are weary and that you would teach us, Lord, where we are ignorant. More than anything, Lord, would you just continue to shape us into people that you are purposing us to be here in this world for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, It was probably about a year ago. Um, I saw an interview with Keanu Reeves. Uh, he was being interviewed by Stephen Colbert on his late night show. You guys know Keanu Reeves, The Matrix, John Wick, stuff like that. He's an actor, and um, Keanu Reeves comes off as a very deep, thoughtful person. He's kind of a quirky guy, and so there was kind of this you know, bantering back and forth and kind of teasing that out, and So Stephen Colbert kind of jokingly just says to him, Keanu Reeves, what happens when we die? And everyone kind of laughs, you know, and he gets really serious. And he says this, he says, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. And that's all I know. And everybody got really quiet and caught Stephen Colbert off guard. And so they just kind of went to commercial. But that answer is a very true answer, isn't it? We know that when we die, those who love us will miss us. We know that's true. But is that all we know? Is that all we know? Is that all I can know? Can you really know anything more than that? Uh, John begins this final section with this final purpose statement. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to believers, and this is really quite interesting if you consider how 
when he ends his gospel account of Jesus' life, and you read the gospel of John, when he gets close to the very end, he says there as well, he gives a purpose statement of why he wrote that gospel. He says, these are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he writes his gospel account so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, you'd have life in his name. That's what he is after in his gospel account. But here, he's writing, not that you might have life, but that you might know that you have it. You might know you have life. We saw in verse 11 last week that this life, this eternal life, is in Christ. That's what it says in verse 11. This life is in his son. We can call this eternal life the Christ life then, really. It's the Christ life. I mean, and this is the thing, though. I mean, a lot of us, I, I think, really do wonder, can I really know that I have eternal life? I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've sat with over the years in tears, wondering, how can I know I'm a Christian? How can I really know that I'm saved? It's a, it's a heavy question that might sit on a lot of our hearts. I mean, if you could really know that you have life, like eternal life, Christ life kind of stuff, wouldn't you want to know that? And if you really knew that, what would that do to your life? What would that, what would that do to your life? I mean, consider it this way. We, we consider it like in a physical life kind of way. If you had cancer, if you had cancer, you discovered you had cancer, you would go in, you'd have maybe surgery, you go through rounds of chemo, that kind of thing. But let's just say you had some scans, and those scans came back to the doctor, and they were clear. You no longer have cancer. Do you think your doctor would want to tell you that you don't have cancer anymore? Wouldn't that be a good thing that the doctor could tell you, right? We would want the doctor to tell us that news, right? In a similar way, John is being a good doctor this morning. He wants you to know. He wants you to know. And if you know, some wonderful assurances are going to flow into your life. And so this is what we see this morning. Um, this is not working. So, good. You can see on the screen behind me. Um, these confidences that John wants you to know that you have as a believer. The first one he's going to show us is that God hears us in verses 14 through 15. He shows us that God gives life in verses 16 through 17. And he shows us that God protects us. But then he kind of ends his letter by showing you how you can really know that you have eternal life in verse 20 and what the natural response to all of this is in verse 21. So the first thing we want to see here is these three confidences that believers have in verses 14 through 19. And again, the first one is that God hears you, okay? So let's look again in verses 14 through 15, and this is what it says. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let me just ask you, how much confidence do you have when you're praying? I mean, do you really think that you're just kind of talking to a ceiling or something? Or in some ways, you ever have this thought, you're like, am I crazy? I'm just kind of talking out loud. I mean, am I a crazy person? That kind of thing. You going to fix that for me? Well, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. There is a confidence that we're told that believers have towards God. What's the confidence? The confidence is that God hears you. That God actually listens to your voice. He listens to your requests. He listens to your heart. You have God's ear. That's what this is telling you right here. 
Uh, Tim Keller once said, the only person who dares to wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is that king's child. That's the only person that can dare wake up a king at three in the morning is the king's child for a glass of water. That's the kind of access that you have to God. Here we are promised that God hears us, that he's a listening God. And the picture we have here is that he is a father listening to his kids and responding to their prayers in order to accomplish the things that he knows is good, the things that he knows that are best, the things that he knows are right. But here's the condition. What does it say? We know that he hears us according to his will. Thank you so much. It's awesome. According to his will. So a really good question then is, how do I know what God's will is? How do I know? Well, there are some things that I know where God's will. Scripture lays these kinds of things out for us. This is probably at least, at minimum, a great place to start, right? That God lays out for us. Just places like First Thessalonians here. That's not it. No, no. Oh my gosh. What is happening to my life? I just went through the whole thing. I'm at the very end. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 3 verses... There we go. Thank you very much. We're going to get through it. We're going to get through it. All right. For this is the will of God. This is it. Your sanctification, that you become like Christ, right? That's God's will. What does that look like? This is his will as well, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. First Thessalonians has other things in there that say this is the will of God, and it's all revolving around this kind of stuff. So, for example, if I pray for patience, if I pray that God would provide an escape from temptation, if I pray that I would grow in love, Right? If I pray that God would soften my heart or for any of the, the fruit of the Spirit kind of stuff, right? And you sincerely want those things, right? God hears you and we have the requests that we ask. That's what it says. That's the promise. Maybe not overnight, maybe not all at once, but he'll give them. Right? This is remarkable. We, we know this. Like if you had, if you knew somebody who was really wealthy and you really trusted them and they said that they had put some money in the mail and they were sending it to you, you would thank them right away, wouldn't you? They told you on the phone, you wouldn't say, well, I'll wait and see if it comes. And then maybe I'll call you, right? You would say, oh, thank you so much. And you would act as if you already had that money. You would say, God has provided, wouldn't you? That's how this works. We would do it in that regard as well. It's the same thing is true about God. We have the request. You see, guys, prayer isn't about getting our will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on the earth. That's what prayer is. It's not about me getting my will done in heaven. It's about God having his will done on earth in the heart of a person who is truly alive with Christ's life, the Zoe kind of Christ's life that we talked about last week. That person confidently prays and seeks God's will being done on earth. But secondly, we're told here that God gives life. What does it say in verses 16 through 17? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask God. And what's God going to do? God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Uh, So secondly, if you have Christ's life, your sins don't lead to death. Instead, God uses the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ to bring you life. God gives life. John goes on to talk about praying for Christians who are sitting here. There is a huge communal element 
to what our life should look like if we have eternal life. Our hearts are not merely concerned about our own lives, our own eternal destination kind of stuff, but with other people. If you have eternal life, this is your heartbeat. You, can, you have concern for other believers. I mean, just consider how we've gone through this entire letter. Love has been one of the primary themes. And here we see that we are guided to not necessarily pray for ourselves, but to pray for other people. And so in a similar way, we know here that me praying for you is an act of love. I am concerned about your life. That is love. Prayer is an act of love. So let me ask you this morning, when you see somebody who you know is a believer and they're walking away from Jesus, what is your initial reaction in those moments? What do you do? Do you pray? Do you go before God and say, God, bring them life? Because they're walking towards death. Give them life. Or is our reaction just to talk about them? Is that our reaction? Did you hear about what's happening with so-and-so? Or do we get on our knees right? We are told our reaction is is prayer because God gives life. That's the promise. But there's also this other sin that we're told here that leads to death. But the death that this is talking about, to be very clear, is not physical death. This is eternal death kind of stuff. Physical death definitely preludes eternal death, yes, but this is a contrast, you guys, to eternal life because that's the kind of life that we're talking about here. This is clearly talking about some kind of sin that winds you up in an eternal sort of death. We immediately want to ask then, well, what does this mean by a sin that does not lead to death? What is this talking about? Uh, I I wonder this morning if if one of the fears that you have is thinking to yourself in the quietness of your heart, uh, I'm not sure that I've fully been forgiven. I don't always feel forgiven. Might I commit a sin that God would refuse to forgive me of? When you read this, is that sort of the anxiety that fills your heart? There's a traditional teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that is honestly developed a a whole theology of sin based upon this one verse. And, And from this one verse, they say there's two categories. There's venial sins, which are forgivable sins, and there's mortal sins, which are unforgivable sins. That's what the Roman Catholic Church would teach you, right? So in 604 AD, Pope Gregory described even seven deadly sins that are unforgivable. And these are the seven deadly ones. You've probably heard of them, right? Pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth. Well, shoot. I don't know about you. I've committed all those, like repeatedly. As far as the Bible's concerned, let me be honest with you guys. All sin is mortal sin. I mean, just consider Romans. The wages of sin is death. Wages is an earning kind of word, right? So what does my sin earn me? Death. It's not physical death. That's death that this verse is talking about. That's what all my sin earns me, right? But we're also told that all sin is forgivable. Because how does that verse end? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This isn't, this is Christ's life. It's a gift, isn't it? Right? The only sin, therefore, that's unforgivable is a rejection 
of the gift of God. That is eternal life. The only sin that's unforgivable is a rejection of Jesus and His completed work on the cross permanently. That sin is unforgivable by definition because that person refuses, you guys, refuses to come to the only place where their sin is dealt with, the cross. That person is an unbeliever. It's kind of a situation be similar to someone who's contracted rabies. If you contract rabies, you develop something called hydrophobia, which is a fear of water. Some of you don't have rabies and you have that, right? But if you have rabies, you develop something called hydrophobia, fear of water. And what that means is uh, you die of thirst because you refuse to go near water, yet water is the only thing that will save your life. It's the same kind of idea. That's how it is with people who refuse to come to the cross of Jesus. They die, rejecting the only thing that can give them life. I'm sure we all have non-Christian neighbors and friends and family members and coworkers. Maybe some, many of you here today are non-Christians, and I'm so glad that you're here. And I would say to you this morning, if you're here, come to the cross of Jesus. Have your sins dealt with. That's the invitation. It's the gift of God. And what John is saying here is he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. And what he means is not so much that you shouldn't pray for those who are rejecting Christ and his work for them, but instead this whole thing is talking about the confidence you have in your prayers. So instead, you don't have the confidence in praying that God will give them life. But if someone is a believer and is in sin, God will bring them home because they're his kids. You can be confident of that. But for those who reject Christ, their sin leads to death. They can only be forgiven if they come to Jesus. And so John is writing here about the believer who falls into sin. If anyone sees his brother, pray. Don't just talk. Pray. And the believer who depends on Jesus and the cross for his salvation, he will be forgiven. God will give them life. He will. He will. Remember my life, I went through probably a six-year period where I hated God. Hated him. I said I didn't believe in God, but yet I hated him. It doesn't make any sense. That was my life. I did everything you could imagine under the sun during those years. Trying to, I was just searching for life everywhere I could ever possibly find it. And God brought me home. God brought me back. He gave me life. And it wasn't until after the fact that I found out from the testimony of my parents that nearly almost every single night they would say, they would go into my room as I'm passed out in my bed and they would get down to the foot of my bed and they would pray. God would bring me life, that God would bring me home. And God did. That's the promise, you guys. Fear of God, he'll bring you back. I wonder how secure you feel this morning, the anxieties that you have. Maybe you think, if, what if temptation becomes too strong for me? What if I get dragged back into a life of sin? What if I turn my life away from Jesus? Well, that leads to that third confidence. God won't let that happen. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 18 is talking about sin as a way of life. It says Christians do not keep on sinning. This doesn't mean that Christians don't sin, but instead this means that sin isn't what we enjoy. It's, it's not something we just love. We don't just swim in it as if it's, it's comfortable and, and home to us. If we sin... Even for long periods of time, your life becomes miserable, right? There's a grief to it. There's a depression even, a guilt. Sin makes your life miserable, especially as a Christian, and we will not keep on sinning. Why? 
because he who was born of God, which is a reference to Jesus there in your passage, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, Revelation says the firstborn of the dead, right? Jesus protects him. Who? Who's that? The believer. Be you. Protects you from what? Well, it's not from just something. It's from someone. Do you see that? The evil one does not touch him. It's important to see here what you're being protected from. It's not just a vague sense of safety. This isn't saying, hey, if you're born of God, no one will ever burglarize your house or something. It's not talking about that kind of thing here. It's, it's, it, what's this talking about is Jesus protecting you from keeping on in your sin. We get further clarity in verse 19 why we don't keep on in our sin, and that is because we are from God. That's a repeated theme we saw throughout this whole letter. And we therefore lie in God's power. We lie in His power. But the world lies in the power of the evil one. But those who believe have eternal life, and those who have eternal life are protected. They're kept by God. I don't know if you've ever read the classic story, Pilgrim's Progress. It's written like 500 years ago or something. And um, I think it's like the second most read book in English literature to the Bible. It's very well read. But the whole book is a giant parable of the Christian life. And at one point in the Bible, in the, Bible, in the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you see this description of a believer on a path, and their path they're going to is, is heaven, essentially. And as they're walking this path, it's a narrow path, and as they're coming up, they all of a sudden see these lions on the side of the road, and they're terrified. They're terrified of these lions, half to death. There's these lions roaring on either side of the road, but what they can't see, you guys, is that the lions have chains, and the chain keeps them just short enough for the road right, from the middle of the road. It's the same idea we get from the Bible. It says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But guys, here's the promise. If you have eternal life, this is the image here. The evil one can't get to you. He's on a chain. It's not a lion. It's a puppy, right? You're secure. Why? We are from God. That's birth language. We are children. We belong to God. He is our Father. And so it's not simply a chain that is used to protect us from the evil one. It's our true older brother, Jesus, right? That's who's protecting you here. That's why we see this imagery in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, which describes Jesus as this, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He protects you. So these are the confidences that you have when you possess eternal life. Right? We know he hears us when we pray. Do you have that kind of confidence? We know that one of the prayers he answers is bringing back a brother or sister in Christ and giving them life. And we know that he protects us. So you might think, that sounds great. If only I could really know that I have eternal life. If I could be confident as God wants me to confident, how do I know? Well, that's how he concludes his letter, really. How you can truly know that you have eternal life Verse 20, what does it say? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This verse is essentially just going right back to verse 13 which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's the true God. So that you may know you have eternal life. And here it's saying the Son of God has come. He's given you understanding so that you might know Him 
right? Believe in the Son language. But not just so you'd have eternal life. What does it say here? It says, He is eternal life. I know Him who is eternal life. John simply says here that how you know you have eternal life is, do you know Jesus? I know I have eternal life if I know Jesus because He is eternal life. This is echoing a prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 when he said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what it says in John chapter 17. So what does our text here say about Jesus? What does it say? That he is the true God and eternal life. Do you see this? Jesus is the true God. To know him is to have eternal life. Why? Because we saw last week in verse 11, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Because eternal life is in Jesus. But it's not something that I use Jesus to get. I have it if I have Jesus. Do you see that? Don't be foolish, right? Jesus is the true God. He's not a means to an end. He's the end. You see that? I asked you this morning, why do you seek Jesus? Why do you seek him this morning? I mean, really, why? Why are you after him? Are you after something from Jesus? Are you after Jesus? See, a means to an end is simply something that is not valued or important in and of itself, but it's useful in getting something else that I want. That's a means to an end. When we do this with people, we say, you used me, right? I was a means to an end. I wasn't valuable or important in and of myself. You wanted something else, you needed me to get that, Right? Is that Jesus? See, eternal life is is not simply a continuation of this life. And that's probably a great thing, because I don't know if any of us would really want that, right? If we could say it this way, eternal life is Christ's life. It's Jesus' life. It's not a continuation of this life, and it's not something that we seek apart from Jesus. It's something we receive when we receive Jesus, with, with that really important clarification in view, back to the original question, how can I be certain that I have eternal life? Because Keanu Reeves and the world and even every devout religious person in the world will say, how can you, Christians, be so arrogant? How can you be so arrogant as to know that you have eternal life? No one else talks like that. Well, people say that because no other belief system brings security because every other belief system is based upon works what all of it is. Let me just consider the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen that movie? It's a long time ago now, maybe. But Saving Private Ryan, it tells the story about a squad of army rangers who are sent on a mission to track down and rescue a young soldier named Private Ryan. Preserving the life of Private Ryan was very important because he was the only survivor at the time of four brothers who were fighting in World War II. And the U.S. government had a policy that no family should lose all of its sons in war. And so, therefore, 
this squad of army rangers was ordered to bring back Private Ryan alive. And this story shows, if you watch it, the incredible sacrifices made by these men to save this one person's life, Private Ryan. Okay? And many men sacrificed themselves in order to deliver him back to his family. And at the end of the story, the leader of that squad that saved Private Ryan was mortally wounded. Okay? He was mortally wounded. That leader paid the ultimate cost in order to deliver that soldier back to his family. And his dying words to Private Ryan were what? Earn this. He gave his life so that Private Ryan could live. And his dying words were, earn this. The last words of Buddha. Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. How could you be so arrogant to be sure that you have eternal life? You see, no other belief system will bring security because every other belief system is based upon works. And Christianity is based upon works as well. But it's not based upon yours. It's based upon the true God, the Son who came. See, the glory of Jesus' work in securing our deliverance is a great contrast to the end of the story of Saving Private Ryan. It's also in great contrast to the final words of the man who's massively influenced Eastern thought. Because after paying the ultimate cost for our freedom, Jesus doesn't say to you this morning, earn this. Just like the squad leader said to Private Ryan, rather Jesus declares to you this morning, receive this. He doesn't say to you this morning, work hard to gain your own salvation like Buddha. Rather, Jesus declares to you this morning, rest in my dying words. It is finished. I completed it. How can you know that you have eternal life? Look at verse 20. The Son of God has come. We've seen him. We know the Son has come and has given us understanding. And here's the point. So that we may know him who is true. We are in God. God the Son, he is the true God in eternal life. Because God has revealed to us that our eternal standing and our security is not dependent upon our own lives and what we've done. It's dependent upon Christ Jesus and what he's done. Security is promised. Assurance is received in the Christian life. It's not earned. And if your heart is having a moment where you're basing your assurance off your earnings, then very naturally you're going to doubt. You're going to feel that question, am I really a Christian if I'm basing it upon my own works? But as we've said many times during this letter, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the object of your faith. If I jump in my own canoe and I try to paddle across the Atlantic Ocean and a storm hits, I'm not feeling that secure. I can barely canoe on a calm lake. But if I'm on the Atlantic Ocean crossing the sea and a storm hits and I'm in a naval battleship, I might take a nap. It's the strength of the object of your faith, you guys. How can I know? Because I know Jesus. He is eternal life. If I am in him, if I'm in the Navy battleship, I have eternal life. I have security. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? 
Do you believe in Jesus? You know, you know that you have eternal life. You have it. This is incredible news. Now what? Just take a nap till eternity? Well, John has at least one word of warning for you. Verse 21, little children, those born of God, keep yourselves from idols. This seems like a random way to end the letter. Um, Kind of a weird parting word, just be honest, right? Um, For some reason, this makes me think uh, when my parents dropped me off in college in Southern California, and their last words to me, essentially, were, don't eat at Jack in the Box. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Uh, It was, like, weird. We were from Montana. We didn't have Jack in the Box. I think there was, like, salmonella going around or something, and I remember being like, okay. And I didn't for 10 years. And I kid you not, I ate Jack in the Box, I got food poisoning, you guys. <laughs> right? I should have listened, okay? That was random. This actually is not. It feels like it is, but it's not. Why this? Why here? This is, only, this is the only direct command in this entire passage. It's the only thing you're told to do. In the entire chapter, it's the only thing you're told to do. The last command, what you're told to do, is not to the end of chapter 4, and what you're told to do is what? Love. Love your brothers. Love your brothers and sisters. This makes sense when you think about chapter 5, because this entire chapter has been talking about what you believe in, what you put your faith in, right? Who your God is. Right? So this word idols, it, it rarely comes up in the New Testament. Paul used it famously in 1 Corinthians when he told us to flee from idolatry, right? But this is really uh, like grounded in a lot of Old Testament language kind of stuff, and I don't have the time to read this, I guess, at this point, but consider like Psalm 115. He talks about these idols that we fashion out of silver and gold, and he says, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have feet, but they can't walk. Then he ends by saying, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, right? He's just saying, this is ridiculous, you guys, right? But then think of famously Isaiah chapter 44, talks about a man who goes and plants a, a cedar tree, and he, the rain waters it, and it grows, and it's nourished, you know, and everything. He even rain, I mean, he can't provide rain, but that's what happens, and he cuts down the tree, and what does he do with that tree? It says, well, he makes a fire, and he, like, warms himself. He, like, bakes some breads because he's hungry, and he saves part of it so he can, like, make an idol and, and put it up, and then he, what does he do? He bows down, and he worships it, and he says, deliver me, for you are my God. And he's like, are you kidding me? A tree? Right? Scripture is pulling back the veil of our blindness and exposes the sheer ridiculousness of the things that are created, like this block of wood, and how we look for things in creation and and find things in creation. We prop them up, and then with our hearts, we worship them. It's It's ludicrous. If we could really see, we would just roll our eyes. You know, these idols can't see, they can't hear. We make them something, essentially. Well, you might be saying, I don't, I don't go to temples, and I don't worship idols, and I don't do that kind of stuff. And I'd respond, that's great. That's a really good thing not to do, okay? But idolatry is so much more than just a figurine. We know this. That's why it's in the New Testament still. It's why it's here. It's more than just an object. An idol is something that we give our heart to other than God. It's, it's anything that we put in the place of Jesus in our lives, the one true God. That's it. So when it comes to idolatry, God tells you to do what? 
keep yourself from idols, meaning the only wise action is to have absolutely nothing to do with them. Don't try to see how near it you can go, but how far away from them you can, you can abstain. Right? That's the language here. This word keep is to make an effort to abstain from, but it carries almost military language with it. It's the idea of watching or guarding against. There's, there's an alert nature to it. In other words, to keep myself from idols, I can't be sleepy about it. I'm watchful. So how active are you in your watching? The thing is though, that you will never keep yourself from something unless you want nothing to do with it. Right? If, I, if I love it, then I will never watch and guard myself from it. I'll actually be on the hunt to find that thing. If you love it, you'll feel like if you're keeping yourself from it, that you're kind of being drug away from it, that kind of idea, right? So in order to keep yourself from them, you must at minimum see their ridiculousness. But more than that, and that's what you're supposed to see, this is what you're supposed to see here. More than that, you must love something or someone more. You must reject the false and love the true, See, idolatry and understanding of what it is is being propped up as a contrast to what we see in verse 20. Remember, John writes, Jesus came so that you may know him who is what? True. And we are in him who is what? True. He is the what? True God. Him who is true, him who is true, he is the true God in contrast to what? The not true gods that posture themselves before you as true, but they're fake. John is saying that he's really been saying the same thing all along. It's not as random as you might think. He's saying, reject the false, embrace the true. This comparison is showing you something very important, and that's this. In order to keep yourself from something, you guys, you by nature need to go to something else. You have to. If not, you will wind up back in the grip of your sin, back in the grip of your idol. That's why if you watch Netflix every single night and then you go, I'm not, I'm, I'm wasting my time. I'm not going to watch Netflix every night anymore. And so evening comes and you just turn your TV off and you sit there. You're like, oh man, what do I do? You know, and you just turn it back on again, don't you? Why? Because you didn't do anything else. You were just sitting in a void and you filled it with something, right? We keep away from idols and we run to where? We run to Christ, the true God. We flee from our powerless God. We run to the one true God who has come. He has left the glories of heaven and put on flesh and has given you understanding why so that you may know him who isn't false, but is the real deal. As if you haven't noticed, John has been putting Jesus forward before us so that in contrast, we would see his glory and his grace and the temptations that come from the world would lose their allure, right? When you see this contrast, that's what he's doing here for you. Do you really want to go after that? Uh, again, I, when I was growing up, I didn't like orange juice. And um, that's because we always get those frozen concentrate cans. And that's what I thought orange juice was. So I was like, this is gross. And I only drank it if I had to or if I thought I wanted to be healthy. I thought that was healthy. I've learned now. But nonetheless, that's what I thought orange juice was, okay? So if you were to ask me, do you like orange juice, I'd say no. But uh, I like Sunny Delight. Like, Sunny Delight was orange juice to me. Really, I'm not lying. And then we moved to Southern California for college, and I got to go stay at a friend's house. There's orange groves everywhere. And I remember waking up one morning for breakfast. And I go out, and my friend's mother is making us breakfast. And she's over there with a bag full of fresh oranges from a grove nearby, and she's squeezing them to a perfect fill 
of two cups of orange juice for us. And I was like, oh, man, I'm thinking I don't like orange juice. And I took a sip, and my life changed, <laughs> right? Changed. From that point on, I was like, Sunny Delight is not orange juice, right? It's just not. That other stuff, that isn't orange juice, right? When I could compare the two, things came to life, right? I saw what the real deal was, and I saw what was fake, what was posing. That's what your idols are. That's what they are. Guys, your heart is building an altar to someone or something, right? But when you compare the life and the gracious actions of the living God to these lame idols that we run after in our lives and we prop them up, we say, deliver me. This doesn't compare. Do you see the contrast? Fake gods are deaf, but the true God hears you. You see that? Fake gods promise life and they end up taking it, but what does this God do? You just saw it today, right? He gives life. He brings you home. Fake gods expose you and they bring shame, but the true God protects you. Fake gods lead you on a path to death, saying you're going towards life, but the true God has given you eternal life. What has knowing the true God done to you? It's given you new life. About 20 years ago, there was a Republican presidential primary debate in Des Moines, Iowa. And one of the questions was asked, it was asked to George W. Bush. And the question was, what philosopher has most influenced you? And in a pretty profound way, his answer was Jesus Christ because he's changed my heart. I don't know if George W. Bush has eternal life. I'm not God. That's a pretty profound Christian answer. Because philosophers do what? They seek to change our minds. But as Christians, we know that's not what we're about. Jesus changes our lives. He changes our hearts. I ask you this morning as we end 1 John, are you alive this morning? Are you alive? Do you have the eternal life vital signs? Are you alive? Has your life changed? The gospel doesn't say come to Jesus and get a better life. The gospel doesn't say come to Jesus and get a longer life. The gospel doesn't say come to Jesus and get a happier life. The gospel says, come to Jesus and get life. That's the, that's the call. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not a membership in an organization. It's not a participation, participation in a certain kind of activity. It's not even simply believing certain truths. It's much more profound than that. It's about who we are. It's about what we are. It's about the nature of life itself. So are you alive? Do you know the sun? You have it. You have it. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would cause your word to produce the fruit in our lives that you're wanting to see. God, I pray that your word and your voice would be the loudest 
in our lives, that we would rest in what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. I know that's so hard. I know for me personally, too, I know for so many of us to not base our lives on our own actions, but yours. And I pray, God, today that you would help us to put our trust in you, to find our confidence in you, the confidence that you want us to have. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.